Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. Zero Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Not for nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. I wouldn't say I'm embarrassed that I posted that photo, but I kind of cringe. She locks herself into the bathroom of this apartment because it has good lighting, and she's lying to her boss that she's working from Berlin. It's us in jail for tax fraud. It's like you having a broken leg at the bottom of some canyon you were trying to hike. Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. I'm Tim. We've done something today that we vowed we would never do. We have a digital nomad on the podcast. Diana Alexandrova is a writer and community manager at Matador Network and the textbook definition of a digital nomad. Originally from a small town in Bulgaria, she currently lives in the Canary Islands of Spain, just off the west coast of Africa. And she might be the best possible representative for digital nomadism. Yeah, I agree. I think what's great about Diana and what makes her a good representation for for digital nomads is that she's actually been doing this for a long time and she she takes it seriously and actually lives the lifestyle. She's not an aspiring digital nomad. And perhaps most importantly, she's not somebody that tries to posture herself as a coach that's going to help you become a digital nomad because God knows the world doesn't need any more people like that. Yeah. So the important point here is me and you, Tim, are are very much down with the digital nomad lifestyle, being able to work from wherever you want, having the freedom to travel, et cetera. It's more the culture and attitude I think we have an aversion to. The sharing a thousand Instagram photos of yourself working on a beach in Thailand with the caption, morning office views or that picture of you on top of a mountain where you're in like fake deep thought with a quote you found for a motivational poster, that stuff we are not down with. And we're so not down with it that we promised at the beginning of this, of starting this podcast that we would never become a how to quit your corporate job and travel the world show. And we're keeping that promise because this conversation is going to look more like a friendly debate than anything else. Diana is a staunch defender of digital nomadism, and this is her forum to present her perspective. And we'll do the same, namely calling out digital nomads for being bullshit. But we we love Diana. She's She was a good sport, and she actually gave me a really cool and different perspective on that lifestyle. My thoughts on the whole thing is like, I, I've dabbled in the digital nomad thing quite a bit. You know, I've spent a lot of time in, in different countries working remotely and, and going to co-working spaces and doing the whole thing. And I've at times have to admit, I've been guilty of posting Instagram photos with the hashtag digital nomad life. Ooh. Yeah. I, I can't believe I just admitted that, but it's true. That's brutal Tim. people can hear this, you know, I know. And I've embraced a lot of aspects of the culture. I think what bothers me so much about digital nomad ing is kind of the posturing around it and the representation that the people that are digital nomads have figured out something that the rest of the world hasn't. I That drives me nuts because the idea of working remotely and traveling internationally at the same time is a beautiful thing that I wholeheartedly support. However, the vast majority of people, it's not a feasible thing for them. And I, I really am turned off by the aspect of the like, look at me, look what I'm doing. You can do exactly what I do if you just follow me and quit your job and move to Thailand. Like I, I really, that 
that turns me off a lot. Like the, 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 the thing that's like, I have life figured out and you don't because you still have to go to the office every day. So we're going to get into that soon with Diana, but first we're going to get right into our hot take section. Tim, you want to uh, grill me first? Sure, Evan. My first question is loosely connected to the digital nomad movement. Are you aware of the FIRE movement and what are your thoughts? I'm not aware of a whole lot, Tim. If we uh, After 26 episodes, we haven't figured that out. I'm not aware of the FIRE movement. Can you enlighten me? Yeah, let's let's break it down a little bit. So FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's kind of a line of thinking based on you can achieve financial freedom by investing in index funds based on the 25% rule where you save 25% you save 25 times of the amount of money that you need to live for a year and then you can draw 4% from your index fund accounts every year and your amount of money and savings will never go down but you're also still covering your costs. And this is something that has been widely embraced lately in the digital nomad movement because Frankly, I think because it's trendy and the the fad around it is kind of guilty of this same thing. Like you can do it too if you just do what I do. Let me just say that I'm more likely to sign up to go to the next fire festival than I am to subscribe to whatever it is that you just said, because you probably put it in the most succinct way possible and you still lost me after the first sentence. So does it sound practical and does it sound like it makes perfect sense off on a superficial level? Yeah, 100%. Do I think that that's something that I'm going to like sit down and do with my life? No. We have to have a financial analyst on to talk about that in, a, in an episode that literally nobody would listen to. <laughs> so Yeah, right. So the, the thing is, is like kind of like the digital nomad lifestyle. It's, it's valid it, for a certain demographic of people, but that demographic of people is very privileged. Yeah, and that I think is one thing about digital nomadism that is overlooked. It's that it seems so simplistic, like, oh, yeah, just quit your job and go travel the world and you know, get a remote work job. Remote work jobs are so hard to come by. It's like 90% luck. And to suggest that, I mean, people have families, they have, you know, whether it's like parents to support or whether it's like a wife or kids, people have responsibilities and a lifestyle in general, apart from their career, that is not conducive to just picking up and moving to an island. So I think that's what gets lost in this. And oh yeah, anyone can do it. You just have to put your mind to it. Yeah. A lot of the people I know that that are quote unquote full nomad, which is a term that means you you have given up your apartment or your house and you full-time travel and live out of Airbnbs or co-living, whatever you're doing around the world. A lot of the people I know that do that or have done that will do it for a couple of years, maybe up to five years, and then they're burned out and they want to settle down. Do you think people who are full nomads judge others who are half nomad or fledgling nomads or just kind of breaking onto the new, the nomad scene? Like, do you think they wear shirts that say full nomad on them? They want to hang out with other full nomads? I, I don't think so because, I mean, I've kind of been like that quote unquote half nomad. Like I, I've traveled a lot and spent months abroad, but I've always had a home to go back to. So I've always kind of considered myself like a half nomad hey guys check out this half nomad over here we got a we got a halfy fucking loser like i in my opinion honestly the community is really open and welcome and people are super supportive and it's inspiring that there, there is a ton of good about it i it's to me it's just kind of a marketing issue that, that i think kind of turns some people off yeah okay um next question real important one here a uh, very hard-hitting question that i think is on pretty much everyone's mind right now are express checkout lanes bullshit? 
So by express checkout lanes, you mean like the 10 items and under, not like the self-scan, right? Yeah. I mean, when you go to the supermarket and there's like seven lanes, five, six normal ones, and then one that's like 10 or 12 and under. Yeah. In my experience, based on something specifically that happened to me the other week, I, I was at Whole Foods. I was just getting one, one item and I only saw one line. It was stretching like around the corner into the aisle. So I just got in it because I thought it was like, there's no reason this line should be so long if there was any other shorter lines. So I figured, okay, well, this must be the only option for me. So it's stupid of me. But anyway, I got in line and I realized halfway down the line that I'm in this express checkout lane. I'm like seven minutes into my wait, easily 25 people in this line, express checkout. And so as I get within eyesight of like the actual uh, register, because it kind of wraps around a corner, I see that all... I think there were five other regular checkout lanes, all of which were open, 100% open. Maybe one or two people were in like a few of these other lanes. And yet we're all a bunch of idiots standing in the express checkout. I, I kind of do think they are bullshit because what are they going to turn you away if you're one item over? If you have 11 items and it's a 10 max, like what are they going to do? True. The reason I think it's bullshit though is because, I mean, it was my it was my fault for getting in that lane. Like that's on me. But I think that if you have 25 people all with four items getting into the express lane, that's going to take way longer than three people who have, you know, 14 items in a regular lane. Yeah. And I think it's probably at, at a place like Whole Foods or Natural Grocers, the express checkout probably is bullshit. Well, what about, how about this? Self-checkout. What do you think about that? I love self-checkout. I use it all the time. And I, I understand why, but I personally can't stand it because number one, what I, do I want a professional bagger who like knows how to bag everything, who's been bagging all day, who has the Tetris system down pat? Or do I want do I want to bag it? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to bag things. I think we've talked about this on an episode before. We have. I, I was just going to say, you te- you seem to be somebody that really puts a lot of thought into your grocery shopping, especially the bagging and checkout experience. Well, if I, I if I was really hands-on, I think I'd bag myself. But I just trust it's this is their job. They're, I respect these people. Like This is their job. They are professional baggers. They know what they're doing. It's going to take me twice as long as someone as doing it in the checkout. Like I have to like count how many bananas I have and then like figure out the price of bananas and press the buttons. These people, it's like off the top of their head, they do it two seconds. So I just respect it. They're pros. I don't, I don't support a supermarket firing checkout people and baggers just to make customers do it themselves. I think it's the same thing as banks firing tellers and having everything be done automated via the ATM. I don't like that. I like the user experience. It's an automation. It's in-your-face automation. And it's probably one of the first demonstrable impacts of uh, jobs being automated by machines was the grocery store checkouts. That was probably one of the first things that was ever put in front of the everyday consumer uh, where they can see that technology really is creeping in and taking people's jobs. My second point on that is my first job I ever had was bagging groceries, and I'm terrible at bagging groceries now. It's not like a skill that sticks with you. I might have been pretty good with it when I did it when I was 15, but I don't remember a damn thing about it anymore. Uh, and I don't know that I was a professional when I did it. I bet you, you Tim, you were professional. Like everyone feels like a bit of a fraud when they start a new job. You know, they think they might not be able to hack it. I bet you were a grade A bagger in your time. 
I was good enough that I got promoted to the service counter after, you know, seven months. Dude, come on. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. They're like, this guy's killing it in bagging service counter. He's service counter material. So don't give me that. All right, Evan. Well, since you cut off uh, my turn there and butted in, butted in with your question, I'm going to ask my <laughs> second question now. Uh, oops. My second question is, you have a remote job that pays a decent living. Uh what is preventing you from being a full-time digital nomad? That's a good question. I mean, it's funny because I had this job for, what, two years, I think, a little less before I actually seriously considered picking up and moving somewhere else to do it. And I like having a home base, honestly. I like having a place that I can come back to and live and be comfortable and know where everything is. Uh, I, as much as I like being on the road, I don't want to be someone who lives out of a suitcase and I never have been. So prior to COVID, the plan had been to move to Amsterdam for three months. And I was like, yeah, cool. I'm going to finally take advantage of this digital nomad thing and, and live in uh, Europe. Then one week before I'm supposed to leave, COVID hits. So that never happened. But uh, no, I like having a home base. I like being away for a few weeks and I like coming back to something familiar getting just restless enough to want to leave again in like three weeks or so, and then coming back and doing it all over again. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think there's a lot of people that that feel that same way, actually. And and I, th- and I this kind of actually sums into, into the thing with the, the quote-unquote digital nomad movement, because I think that there is this pie-in-the-sky concept of what a digital nomad needs to be, but it doesn't have to be that. Like, you don't have to be moving from country to country every two months. Like, you can be somebody that splits your time between two or three different spots. You can be somebody that, you know, owns a home in Colorado, but then spends, you know, two months a year in Mexico or whatever. Like there are any different iterations of what you can do and call yourself a digital nomad. The, the, the point to me is being location independent and being able to make these decisions for yourself on where you want to base yourself and not having to base it on a job. That to me is like what it all kind of boils down to. It's not constantly traveling all the time yeah it's the knowing that you can if you want to knowing that you can take a trip or move or like you know i came out to colorado for a bit too i don't have to think about oh i have to take pto or oh how's this going to work with my like office job it's that's that's the benefit it's not like oh you got a remote work job time to time to sell your apartment and just live out of a suitcase that's not what it's about for me all right well that's what i got you can butt back into your turn now all right you live in a small town if tomorrow a thousand digital nomads, all from the same country, descended on Palisade, Colorado, flooding the parks with their laptops and cramming into the local bars at night, what country would you like those people to be from? Australia, because I have long had this belief ever since I started becoming a regular traveler. I've had this opinion that's based on fact, I believe that as long as you're somewhere where there are a lot of Aussies, you're probably somewhere pretty awesome because Aussies tend to flock to awesome places like Whistler, Canada. That was where I first noticed this. Why do you think that is? Do you think they just have a nose for the hot destination? What is that? I think so. I think Australians, you know that, have you ever seen Wayne's World? You know that, uh, not Wayne's World, I'm sorry. Uh, Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, in, in Dumb and Dumber where they're talking about the women flock here like the salmon of Capistrano. I've felt that way about Australians flocking to like awesome uh, vacation and and expatriating locations. I think Australians have that on lockdown. Yeah, and I also feel like they know how to have a good time. 
And they're outgoing. They're like loud, outgoing party people, you know? The negative effect is that it makes you feel like you're in the UK, no matter where you go in the world. So I was I remember being in uh, France, in uh, Nice, south of France. And I we were I was up with my buddy and we were trying to go out and like, you know, like a nice, like a bar that was fun, but also was kind of like, you know, had a good French vibe because we were in France. We wanted to experience like French culture, whatever that is. And we get to this bar that was kind of, everyone recommended to us. It was kind of like an Irish pub type bar, but everyone was like, oh yeah, this is where everyone parties. So we get there and it's chock full of Australians. Of course it is. On like a, on, on holiday. And they're all, they're like traveling through, uh, through Southern France. And I don't think there was a single French speaking person in the bar, but it was an absolute blast. Everyone was standing on the tables and dancing. And it was just, it was like a scene out of a movie. It was so much fun. I, I stepped out of that bar at like 3 a.m. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, I'm actually still in France. This isn't Canberra or uh, London. It just felt so English to me <laughs> that it's it was like, okay, well, that wasn't exactly a cultural experience. Well, that ought to do it for hot takes. We're locked and loaded here. Stevie's back with us after his spring break. He's been hung over for the past four days, um, being completely useless. Yeah, you should see the suntan on this guy. Yeah, he thought Bulgaria. So Dan is from Bulgaria. He thought Bulgaria was in Africa. So he's 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 not exactly playing with a full deck right now. But we'll cut him some slack because he had a long weekend. So we will pray for Stevie and get right into it with Diana. All right, Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you're a digital nomad extraordinaire, but better known as the voiceover from our intro section of this podcast. <laughs> that is the proudest moment of my life. And thank you for making that happen. I'd like to thank all my family. You're from a small town in Bulgaria where the opportunities for work and travel seemingly are pretty limited. How did you end up in this lifestyle in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually calling it a small town is way much of an overstatement. Um, I was born in a village because in Bulgaria, if you're not from the capital city, you're pretty much from the boonies. And so I am a very proud villager. And it was very much withdrawn from everything that was happening in the world. So long story short, as a child, I kind of grew up watching MTV and just American programs. And I uh, had an English tutor. Um, she charged $2 an hour to teach me English at home three times a week. So that was awesome. And when I was about 16 years old, I applied for a scholarship to study in the US for a year as an exchange student. Um, I studied in high school in New Hampshire that was located on ashram. And I did that for two years, junior and senior year. Then I got accepted um, with a scholarship to Trinity College in Connecticut. And after four years there, I graduated and I had one year to kind of pursue whatever career in the U.S. would open up to me. So because my passport was from Eastern Europe, obviously was tougher than other people. Um, so my first job out of college was a door-to-door -door salesperson from Verizon. Uh, so I did that for about three months. Hold on, I'm going to stop you real quick. Sell me, sell me Verizon right now. Do your quick 10-second sales pitch. I mean, you know you need internet, and they all suck, but this one sucks a little less than the rest, so come on. <laughs> okay, I'm, start, I'm starting to understand why you uh, pivoted careers. <laughs> why I got fired, yeah. But um, I did, I worked for Bank of America for four months, and I. this is when I first encountered corporate culture, 
and I hated it so much because, you know, it's the details. Anytime you have to go pee, you have to clock out and then you have to time how long it takes you to go to the bathroom and then you have to like clock back in again. Wait, 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 wait. What kind of company was this? I've, I've worked in corporate uh, companies before, but this is this sounds more like a gulag than a company. Kind of, yeah. I mean, this was like, so when I say I was a teller at Bank of America, teller is the person behind the window. So like I had to touch a bunch of money, like maybe like 60 grand a day. I had to like count and move through my hands. And this is when I actually started hating cash and like the whole structure. But yeah, it's very much uh, controlled. Like anytime you need to step out for anything, like a sip of water, anything, you just have to put it in the system. So I was like, ooh, this is really not what I want to do. So I quit that job after four months and then I booked a one-way ticket to Bali and I was like, okay, I saw on the internet that people go to Bali and teach English. So maybe I could go to Bali and teach English. And I saw that movie with Julia Roberts, you know, Eat, Pray, Love. And I was like, oh, okay, New York woman, travel writer, uh, leads her life, goes to Italy and then India and then ends up in Bali and finds love with Javier Bardem, who I I think was pretty handsome. So I was like, that's what I'm gonna do. And I saw that a, a treehouse hotel in the Dominican Republic was looking for volunteers to bartend four hours a day or do social media four hours a day. And in exchange for that, you get free, uh, free housing and free food. So I was like, great. If I sublet my apartment in Barcelona, I can buy a ticket, go there and stay until I figured out how to be a digital nomad. I spent uh, about a month looking for gigs online. And then finally, uh, I virtually met this guy who had a recruiting company in California. And he was like, hey, I can hire you on a monthly basis. Like, what if I paid you a thousand euros? So you would work for me month to month and do it from your computer. And we would just kind of catch up during the week. And I was like, yes. It sounds like OnlyFans, just so you know. <laughs> It's kind of like OnlyFans for people who have some brains, you know. But yeah, I mean, that, that's how I got into it. And that was 2017 in the summer. And ever since then, I, I kept, you know, getting opportunities mostly with writing online. And it's kind of the attitude, like once you get a job through the internet, you're like, why would I ever wake up and put on clothes and like talk to people? Why would I do that if I can just work through the internet and get paid in PayPal? Right. So then you freelance for Matador, started working for Matador, um, and now you kind of lived in Barcelona. Now you live in the Canary Islands, so you kind of been all over Costa Rica, I know as well. And there's a lot of associations with the digital nomad lifestyle that might not be true to what it's actually like to live it. So in your eyes, what is a real digital nomad versus someone? who is a fake digital nomad, someone who's just kind of uh, pretending to be in that lifestyle on social media. The people you see who kind of post a picture uh, from a sandy beach in Thailand with their laptop, like on a wooden table saying like, yo, this is the life I'm working from here. Like that's my paradise. Uh, no. First of all, you got to plug in your laptop somewhere. You can't work on a beach like that. Like the sun is so strong in Thailand. Like you can't even see your screen. That is silly. Like that's people who do it kind of for the fame, you know, to say like, oh, I've got this freedom. And usually the people who do that and they market themselves as digital nomads is also the same people 
who will sell you a 99 course on how to be a digital nomad. Uh, what One thing that I think is a, the biggest probably misrepresentation of being a digital nomad, a lot of people view it at like the digital nomad is the thing, which, which I think is wrong. You have to actually make a living uh, doing something, you know, uh, and, and to me, being a coach is complete crap. That's a there, that, there's no value there. Uh, the world does not need another life coach. But I think the whole digital nomad marketing thing, it creates this picture that that is the thing to strive for when actually what you're trying to strive for and what you need to do is figure out how to make a living working remotely. Being a digital nomad is the perk to do that. You have to do something to be able to support yourself. And I think that is skipped over a lot in these like digital nomad 101 uh, Instagrams and YouTubes and stuff like that, where it's just like, oh, yeah, you can be just like me if you just quit your job and move to Chiang Mai tomorrow. Like it's 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 nonsense, honestly. Yeah, I see a lot of people like selling a course on how to be a digital nomad and quit your job, and that's terrible advice. Don't ever take that advice. Like right now, I gotta say, with 2020 and COVID, there's a huge trend towards going remote. And so a lot of skills that people have really can be translated to be done remotely. But first you really have to know what it is that you wanna do and that you enjoy and that you're good at. You know, like being a digital nomad, these courses is like, oh, do this one trick for seven days and you're gonna lose 10 pounds. It doesn't fucking work. Like who believes this? I know it's amazing to believe, but it's not real. The definition of what a digital nomad is, is kind of expanding as remote work becomes more uh, popular, especially with COVID. Like it used to be kind of people who were uh, able to travel for a living, do their writers, social media people, bloggers, whatever. It was kind of a smaller group of people. And now that so many more businesses are going online, it can be literally anyone whose job lets them work from home, which is a lot of people. So I'm curious to see how that changes this digital nomad aesthetic. And I think it's the aesthetic more than anything else that me and Tim have issues with rather than the lifestyle? Well, I'll say this. So right now there's obviously with COVID, a lot of people can work remotely, but remote work and digital nomad is not the same thing. So I live in Tenerife, right? I kind of moved out here because the weather is better and there's less restrictions than in Barcelona. And I've met a lot of people and a lot of the people I've met work from their laptop, but at the same time, they tell their job, okay, this is a crazy story. I lived in a in a co-living apartment and there was this girl, Cindy, and she is German, right? So Cindy says to her job, oh yeah, I'm in Berlin, I'm working from home. Meanwhile, she takes a flight to Tenerife, she books into this apartment, and every day between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m., she locks herself into the bathroom of this apartment because it has good lighting and it sort of looks put together like an office. And she's lying to her boss that she's working from Berlin. And it's like, all right, you are <laughs> not a digital nomad. Like, it, and so this is the thing, like remote work, when people allow you to work from home because it's not safe to go to an office, is not being a digital nomad. Because if you're a digital nomad, that means that this is your lifestyle. So you can pack up and go whenever you want, wherever you want. And people know that you're doing this and it's not like you're cheating or you're lying or you're literally taking up space in the bathroom, Cindy, for like eight hours a day, pretending you're in Berlin. So, <laughs> But here's the thing. If she can make that work, then isn't she a digital nomad for whatever, the month or two she can pull that off? Because I kind of feel like digital nomadism is half about 
actually just doing it and enjoying yourself. And the other half is about the pride you take in being a digital nomad and letting everyone else know that you are one. Yeah, but at the same time, like, isn't that digital fraud? Like, I get the pride, but it's not real. I mean, at least she's making a living, though. Like, at least she's doing something that's adding value to the world. You got to give her that. I mean, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous that she's sitting in the bathroom. But so I, I have identified pretty strongly with the movement over the years. I've always had a home, but I've never so I've never been, quote unquote, full nomad, you know, as as people say. But I feel like I have embody a lot of the characteristics, but I think that there's kind of been a misrepresentation in certain ways, like the the quit your job and move to Thailand thing. Like nobody ever wants to talk about the fact that you're giving up your health insurance. If you're an American, you're giving up your health insurance by quitting your job. You're giving up your retirement benefits. You're, you're giving up all of these things. And there are companies like Safety Wing that are working to close that gap and kind of create this social safety net. But I think a lot of the the how to become a digital nomad stuff intentionally skips over those things because there is no answer to them yet. And I, I really think that for the movement to be successful in the long term, there has to be an answer to these major, major problems. Like what happens when your parents become ill and you don't have any insurance or, or a means to help them? because you've been living in Thailand for $500 a month for the last 10 years. I, there are a lot of things that I think knots that still need to be tied. That's true. And I agree with that. And honestly, I had an experience last week. So I've got traveler's insurance, but here's the thing. Traveler's insurance covers you for like 40 days after you land in your destination. And I've been in my destination for seven months. So I had really high fever. I went to the hospital. I got diagnosed with pneumonia. And I had to pay for my visit. And it was like, oh, this is like $490 out of my pocket. And of course, there's the issue of, you know, nobody really sets you up for this. Because think about it, when, you, when, you're, when you're a coach, for example, and you're trying to sell a course on how to live this dream lifestyle, nobody wants to talk about the shitty parts of it. Like nobody wants to talk about what happens if you're burning with fever or you break your leg or like if you're, if you get stuck somewhere or like even like one big thing for me that nobody talks about, and this is scary, is taxes. So like what happens one day when you kind of stick around somewhere and the government from, you know, whatever country you're from comes after you or like that country, it's like, are you going to get, you know, are you going to get sent to jail for tax evasion? Like, what do you do? So there, of course, there's a lot of things that need to be worked out. And unfortunately, people are selling the idea of the dream lifestyle without having, you know, the backbone of what you need to have this dream lifestyle. I would love to see a picture on someone's, Insta on someone's Instagram feed alongside all of their like beach pictures and their party pictures in the Caribbean when they're, you know, doing the digital nomad lifestyle. And there's just one of them in jail for tax evasion <laughs> just to get the full breadth of the experience. You know, people want to post the, the highlights of their life. So that's an understandable thing, but it kind of creates this super glossy, idealistic view of the life without really giving people an idea of what it's actually like i think that i mean then tim if you disagree let me know but i think we're on the same page as, on this there is an element of almost naivete to that and like a privilege that everyone can is in a situation where they can just quit their job and leave home and move to a, another country and do this 
Whereas there's a million other considerations to be taken into account, like economic background, social background, opportunities, uh, responsibilities back at home, things like that, that a majority of people have to consider before they can even think of doing something like this. Whereas if you look at a lot of Instagram feeds, it's like, it's very, well, you just, just do it. Just, just, just wish it and it'll happen. And I think that's one of the disconnects I have. I agree with you, Evan, uh, by and large that, yeah, I think there's a, there's an overlook of a lot of, a lot of privilege that goes into it. That's true. And, and the fact is that, for example, I post a lot of my life on Instagram and I had this guy who's following me. He's 52 years old. He messaged me last year and he said, well, hey, Diana, uh, you know, I'm an engineer here in Italy, but I really always wanted to do travel writing. So I'm thinking of quitting my job and just going for it. And I said, please do not do that. I said to him, listen, if you're already close to retirement and you just want to kind of fuck around and you have like your pension fund and everything, sure. But if you actually are, you know, trying to make a living, don't quit your job as an engineer to try travel writing. And the thing is like, as we all know, travel writing is hyper competitive. It's like sometimes it could be cutthroat, but it's so crazy because when you go on Instagram, like, and you see this over and over again, like it's just so tempting. Yeah. And I, I think that what I value about being location independent is the ability to choose and to make the things happen for myself as I am able to do and want to do. Which nationality of people that you meet in your travels do you find the most pretentious or obnoxious remote worker? I mean, I don't really know if there's one nationality. I do have to say when you say pretentious, like I am so tempted to say the French and God love them, but like the French, oh my God. <laughs> I've met so many people who are like, kind of like, this is not good enough and the Wi-Fi is not good enough and the coffee is not good enough. You know, it's French, that's the answer. Diana hates the French, <laughs> hates them. It's funny though, like I have a friend and I'll, I'll even call him out. It's my buddy Drew, who's a long time nomad. And he once told me, we were talking about Outsite, which in my opinion is a great chain of co-living houses around the world. I, I stayed in one in uh, LA that was amazing. But he told me once that he was considering booking at an outsite and he requested that the front desk person, and this is like before he had ever showed up, he's you know far away considering booking a room there. He requested that the, the front desk person go and take a photo on their phone or a screenshot on their computer of the Wi-Fi speed and email it to him so that he could verify that the Wi-Fi speed was what they said it was on the website. And that to me, I was like, wow, that's high maintenance. It's not that crazy though, because like I can't risk having a place with bad internet because then I lose the gig. Are you sure you're not just interested in the Wi-Fi so that you can make sure that you can post six Instagram stories a day or? I mean, obviously that like uh, people need to see my abs, you know, sometimes <laughs> some abs, like two of them. So they have to see them. <laughs> Speaking of that, do you think there's a value to showing the less glamorous side of the digital nomad lifestyle? Because I feel like I mean, your Instagram is very positive and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be. And a lot of nomads have very similar feeds. It's very bright. It's very cheerful, motivational stuff. Um, is there, like we we're talking earlier about all the, the hard aspects of, of the lifestyle, is that you think there's a relatability benefit to posting like, Hey, like today sucked because uh, I forgot that my health insurance expired and I'm sick. No, of course. It's not just an insight. It's a necessity. You have to tell people about everything. Like, think about it this way. When you're buying a house, you have to know every little nook and cranny if you don't want it to be a huge money. But like, you have to know what you're getting yourself into. So 
I don't think I posted photos of me at the hospital last week just because I was delirious on antibiotics. But when I got out of the hospital, I was like, hey, I've been silent because I got sick and this happened and that happened and I had to pay out of pocket and stuff. So yeah, all of that needs to be known. Well, I want to see from you, Diana, maybe on April, maybe on April Fool's Day, I want a day of straight posting of just negativity. <laughs> I want you hooked up to IVs in the hospital. I want the tax tax evasion jail thing. <laughs> I want anything you can just, just wrapped up in blankets, like shitty day, awful mood, just all negativity. And then back back to sunshine the next day. Stuck at the airport for 12 hours. Yeah. Well, it's time, I think, to get into our next segment, which is listener questions. So we have listeners submit um, questions, travel-related questions uh, that we then pose to our guests. And we have one for you right now. That's relatively on topic to something we were talking about earlier. It says, I do a lot of traveling and I find it tough to meet people on the road that turn into lasting relationships. Either people are constantly on the move like me, or they're not interested long-term in someone always going from place to place. How do you handle this? Yeah, I think that's a very valid point and I've, I've encountered this a couple of times. Um, so I feel like when you, when you meet someone and you actually are able to connect on a level that is deeper than just, oh, let's go for a drink, you kind of are able to create a, a more lasting connection. I feel like you have to connect not so much on your interests, but on your values. Because if I connect with someone just because we both like to jet ski in Mexico, cool, but will I ever talk to you? Probably once a year when you stalk me on Instagram or stalk me on Facebook or whatever. But when you actually meet someone and you talk about, let's say spirituality, that's one thing that I'm interested in. And you kind of, you know, talk about your values and your vision of the world and your vision of how you want things to be and what you want to do. These conversations end up leading to, you know, they lead to uh, deeper connections. And then that's likely a person that you get their contact down and you're like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm traveling on to, say, Singapore or Cambodia. Um, and you're in Austria, but like, if we're ever like around, I don't know, Costa Rica later this year, let's hang out. And with that said, like I've, I've had a lot of, uh, friendships and relationships that have been very fleeting, but at the same time, I've managed to make deeper connections with a lot of people. And this is what's always helped me is seeking out kind of, you know, connection based on values. And there's a definitely a distinction between party friends and friends that you actually soberly speak with and you connect on deeper things. So I would say definitely don't be discouraged. Uh, it is a little tough. You will have more fleeting connections than you will have lasting connections. But the ones that you do have that are lasting, they'll be really special. And sometimes it's a little more rare, but sometimes you will meet someone and be like, oh, hey, do you want to do this next journey together? And they'll say yes. And then that's going to feel like so incredibly amazing that you'd be like, Yes, all of this was worth it. So avoid the bars. <laughs> where, where do you go, Diana? What's the, what's the uh, where do you meet people? Well, I, I like stuff that's kind of like in the outdoors. So like hiking trips or camping or zip lining or even like digital nomad meetups that are at a barbecue or a beach or whatever. I used to dance uh, Latino, I used to dance bachata and Latino stuff like salsa for a year. So when I would go to Amsterdam, I'd go to a Latino bar and I'd meet like Dutch people who, who dance bachata. So that was one way to do that. There's that. Yeah. I, I like to hang out in the uh, 
parking lot of therapist offices where they do uh, couples counseling. I find that there's a lot. That's, that's a good way to meet women. Just get in there early before they're before they're free. Oh, you're awful. <laughs> My friend did uh, speed dating the other day. What do you think about that? Totally unrelated to this, but it's just on my mind. I never actually had a friend that did that. And it's he said it was a pretty interesting experience. Just sat there in a room and like went around and did speed dating. Okay, so I got to say I like it because I'm on my feet. So like some of the work that I do as a copywriter. So what a copywriter does is our job is to get your attention with a headline in the first three seconds. So for me, if I'm speed dating, I'm like, I just come up with a killer line. And I'm like, yeah, so, you know, they, they say, oh, so tell me something about you. And I'm like... You know, one time I lived in a tree house and I was volunteering at this orphanage and I was riding a motorcycle through the jungles of the Dominican Republic. How about you? Yeah, see, see, that's a left swipe for me, Diana, <laughs> I got to be honest with you. Too much? If you sat down across from me and said that, I'd be like, all right, whatever I say is going to make me sound like a fucking idiot next to that. So it's too hot. You're coming in too hot. I mean, you know what? You can't play. Don't come to the table. You know that's why we the mouth. That's that's fair. That's fair. I mean, yeah. You know what? I I respect the uh, the aggression in that. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really nice. I promise. I'm not aggressive. I've lived in a treehouse. I ride motorcycles. What the fuck do you do? The one time I went fishing and I caught a salmon with my teeth. I was fishing. Didn't even have a pole. Just reached into the water, caught it, ate it raw. Didn't even cook it. Like a bear. <laughs> yeah. All right, Diana. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, guys. And uh, I, I'm I'm so happy that you know you're doing this podcast because it's so honest and it's so real and it's a pleasure to tune in every week. Well, I appreciate that. Always a pleasure. Okay, well, here we are in the takeaway section after what was quite a lively chat with Diana. Uh, I, I know that I kind of had some reframing on, on stuff during this chat, and I think that, God, I mean, we could have talked about this for hours with her. We could have just gone on and on and on, but we kept it relatively concise, I feel. Yeah, so what are our takeaways? Because we, I think, both came into this conversation with some pretty strong preconceptions, and uh, our own opinions were pretty firmly rooted. So how have have you been given a new perspective on this? Has any of your opinions changed? What are the biggest things that you took away from the interview? Well, w one thing I really liked about talking with Diana is how actually she was so willing to be honest about everything and talk about some of the negative stuff because that's what you don't see on on Instagram and social media for most digital nomads. And to me, the takeaway there is that you might be a digital nomad, and that's great if you are. But the fact is, A, it's not all rosy, and B, nobody else really cares if you're a digital nomad. You know, posting these positive things on inst on Instagram all the time isn't necessarily helping the cause of the digital nomad. Yeah, what I kind of learned from that conversation was that there's this uh, assumption that everybody wants a remote job, everyone wants to live in Bali, and you know what? If I'm kind of going over my a list of my friends just in my mind, I think like 99% of my friends have no interest in doing that. So the, the social media presence of digital nomads is so based on the premise of everyone should want to be doing what I'm doing. And I don't think that's the case now that I really, even, even someone like me who works in travel and loves traveling, I, that's, that's not the lifestyle I want either. So me too, actually, I look back to some of my photos that I posted on Instagram when I was in Bali or when I was in Europe or South America or whatever, you know, Oaxaca, where my wife and I spent a fair amount of time. And I, I had posted a lot of photos using these hashtags, 
that are associated with digital nomad. And I look back on some of them, particularly years ago now, like from Bali. And I'm, I wouldn't say I'm embarrassed that I posted that photo, but I kind of look at what I wrote and the photo I posted and I kind of cringe. Yeah. There's a good, it's a happy medium. You know, there's one thing to post travel photos. I try to post maybe one photo from every trip I do because I I'm very like self-conscious about overwhelming people with like travel pictures and being that guy. And people, yeah, people are interested to see if you've been somewhere cool, but they do not want to see 17 photos from the same trip of you just at, from different angles on a beach. And maybe that's just not because I'm a, I'm not quite as photogenic as a, uh, a girl on the beach in Bali, but it's the same principle of people don't care. They just don't care as much as you think they do. And I think another thing, and this kind of leads right into that. Another thing that is often hyped about the digital nomad lifestyle is the very simple put in a box, quit your job, move to Chiang Mai, you can be a digital nomad too. And I think that what that is missing and what we uncovered today is that you have to actually do something while you're a digital nomad. You have to make a living. You have to be a freelancer, start an online business, or work a remote job. Those are the three ways you can make this happen, You know, unless you're a trust funder or something. those You have to fit into one of those three categories, and you have to actually work. You have to actually grind it out and and put in the time to build this lifestyle for yourself. It's not just a, oh, I'm quitting my nine to five office job and I'm selling all of my shit. Right. Which sounds like kind of a less romantic way of putting it. But I mean, it's it's tough. As we said in the interview, you need to have a remote job, which are becoming easier to get nowadays because of COVID. But I think the romantic aspect of it, dropping everything and living out of a suitcase and going to Thailand is is, is great. And that's awesome. And I'm not going to shit on that. But there are unfortunately a lot more considerations to be taken when you actually have to practically make those decisions. And when you look at someone's social media feed and you get tempted by the lifestyle, like Diana was saying, none of that stuff comes into, into your consideration, including taxes, including insurance, including all these other things that these people will never tell you about. I think, Tim, I feel like we should start a social media channel that's called like the real digital nomad, even though neither of us are digital nomads. And it's just like every, it's all just negativity, all the negative aspects of being a digital nomad. It's us in jail for tax fraud. It's us like standing outside of a hospital, like looking like mournfully into the window because we don't have, we don't have any health insurance. Um, it's like you having a broken leg at the bottom of some Canyon you were trying to hike and you have no cell service. Right. I, I think that could be pretty funny actually, but you know, I do want to say that I, the best thing about this chat with Diana to me was that she actually opened up about some of her struggles and some of her initial, you know, misguided failures or whatever, or lack of preparedness in certain approaches. And I think that that is awesome. I think that the movement needs more of that. It needs more of the, more of the reflection on what you could have done differently and how you learn from that instead of just the, the glossiness that you see. Yeah. And that's why she was perfect to have on because she was very honest and a lot of people just aren't about this kind of lifestyle. And one of my other takeaways was her honesty about what it's like to meet people. Her basically saying, okay, your relationships are going to be fleeting because of the nature of this life, you're going to, the people you meet, you're probably never going to see again unless you have a rare, very deep connection on your values. And she, I mean, she said that people that you meet and you make a real connection with, you could maybe continue traveling with them or meet up with them again down the road. In my experience, 
it's just so tough. It's so tough to meet anybody on the road and really have a realistic chance of seeing them again if you're both from different countries and you're just kind of meeting in this kind of cross path kind of way. It's so hard. If you're really looking to meet long-term friends or long-term relationship, this is not the lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, I have met people in Bali. I have, you know, a couple that I'm good friends with from my years in Bali, or not years, my time in Bali years ago. Uh, it was in 2017, and I'm still in touch with them, and and have seen, you know, I've now met with them on three continents, which I think is pretty cool. But again, that's one relationship out of all of the people I've met in that time. And you know, there are other people from different places, like Catherine, which we had on a couple of months ago, is a good example of somebody I met in Mexico that I'm still in touch with. But yeah, I mean, it's it's like maybe one in ten of the like people you call your friends when you're in a place that you're like, yeah, we're definitely going to stay in touch. Maybe 10% of those relationships will actually turn into a long-term friendship. And it's, it's worth it for those, you know, that 10%, because sometimes those, those are the people you share really cool experiences with and you, you know, you have that to look back on and it's, it's worth it for sure. So by no means should you not, not travel because, uh, your relationships are going to be fleeting. Um, fleeting relationships aren't necessarily bad relationships. I think it's it's great. I mean, when I've met people abroad that I haven't seen again, it, there's still people I talk to. It doesn't mean that we don't speak or connect or catch up, but it's just if your goal, I guess, is to, you know, meet a partner or make like really deep, long-lasting friends, hopping from island to island and constantly being on the road and never having a, a home base is probably not the way to do it. I agree. And I think the other and probably final big takeaway that I got from Diana's chat today is that there can be an end game to the digital nomad thing, which is something that I kind of have felt when I've been traveling long term is to like, you know what? Yeah, maybe I really like it here, but I don't know if I really want to be traveling constantly forever. I don't think that is for me, but I do like what she said about, yeah, I wouldn't mind having a home base in two or three different spots. I think for a lot of digital nomads that I've talked to, that is kind of the end goal is not to always be traveling for the rest of your life, but to maybe have a couple of places that you really like and want to spend a lot of time in and not just always be tied to your hometown or whatever. Yeah. And that's another thing I've learned from this whole uh, interview is that me and you are just big home base guys. Like we're not, uh, we're not living out of suitcase guys. We like our, like to have a solid foundation to come back to. So yeah, I mean, I don't have any intention of lugging around my snowboarding gear in Southeast Asia. You know, that's just not going to work. Right. Or in our case, we don't because we don't check bags living out of a backpack. All right. Well, great takeaways. Great takeaways. Great talk. Thanks again to Diana for coming on. You can find her uh, on Instagram as the most ironic ending to this conversation. Probably Diana Travels is her handle. You can also read a bunch of her stuff at Matador Network. She is a regular contributor there. Let us know if you guys think digital nomads are bullshit in the Apple comments and make sure to leave us a five-star review. We'll see you next week.